Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to see what you would have us see from this and to see this historical event that is happening that we're covering. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 11. We, in chapter 10, we uh, had the two kings of Israel and Judah both murdered by Jehu. And we're going to continue what happened in the southern kingdom after the, after the murder of Ahaziah. So verse 1. And when Ahithophel, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal seed. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of the king Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away among the king's sons which were slain. And they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. And he was with her hid in the house of the Lord six years, and Athaliah did reign over the land. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. This is the one and only ruler over is, uh, Judah that's not of the seed of David. And she's there for a short time, and technically Joash is king that whole six years. She reigns, but she is the official uh, head of the of the country, and she is not of David's seed. So, Athaliah was the mother of Ahaziah. She is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was the wicked queen in Israel. And Athaliah does not fall far from the tree as far as being evil. And uh, so we see her coming in. And when she sees that her son is dead, she goes out to kill all the, all, the, all the boys of the royal family. What a nice woman. Her son is dead, so she's going to kill all of his, she plans to kill all of his sons, all of, all of uh, the sons of, of uh, Ahaziah. And she is wanting to position herself to be ruler of Judah, all right? And we said just before you all got in that she is the only ruler over Judah who is not of the line of David. And technically, she is not in charge because Joash has been hidden away. Uh, but she is going to rule as far as people are concerned for six years, even though she is a traitor in a treasonous position at this point. So her son dies, and she immediately goes out to kill all the males of, of the line of, of David and uh, because she is wanting to make herself in a position of being in charge. And so she's out there, and then verse says, But Jehoshabeb, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from the king's sons, which were slain, and they hid him and his nurse in the bedchamber, chamber which Athaliah, uh, from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. So we go, well, who is Jehoshabeb? She is the daughter of Ahaziah, of, of excuse me, of, of uh, Joram, and the sister of Ahaziah. And she is married to the high priest, 
of Israel. All right? So she is married uh, to him, and basically what she is going to do is uh, take Joash and his nurse and take him into where the priests live so that Athaliah cannot go, will not find him. And so we're going to see how he is, he, uh, Joash is going to be raised by Jehoiada. All these really easy names to say. All right, Jehoiada is the high priest. He is the husband of Jehoshaphat. This is God protecting the line of David. All right, because remember, David's line was always going to sit in the kingship of, of Israel or Judah, as it became later. So he always has to have an unbroken line. So this is the protection of that line as Athaliah goes out and destroys all of David's sons or all the sons that are left. She wants nobody to be able to challenge her as ruler of Judah, even though she is not God's choice and not going to be correct in that and so she goes out, she murders, them, murders all the children or has them all murdered. Jehoshaphat steals away with Joash and goes to the temple area, wherever, wherever her family is living. And they hide in the house of the Lord for six years. All right? So this is, he was literally an infant at this point, you know, no, no more than a year old. And they take him, and he's being raised at the temple for six years as he's being hidden. Now, what are they telling him? I don't know. Uh, we're going to find out that Joash was a great king as long as Jehoiada lives. Right? Jehoiada is the high priest, basically treat, you know, treats him as his son, has been teaching him the, the laws of God, the commandments of God, probably teaches him a little bit about who he is and how to be a king. But he's teaching him to be a righteous man. So Joash is going to be righteous when he starts out. He's one of the better kings of Israel when he starts. And he is raised up, and in, this, in verse 3 it says, And Athaliah did reign over the land. So nobody's challenging her for a while. Even though Joash is alive, which means he is, he is king right from the very beginning, they're not challenging him because if a three- or four-year-old tried to raise up against her, he would have been executed right off, right off. So you know, he's hiding him until the right time to present him as king. And you've got to figure how hard this is for Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat uh, Jehoshaphat to be able to say, we know who the king is. He's right here, and we've got to watch this pretender reigning in the land. She, and in, we don't know fully what she did, but she is Jezebel's daughter, which means she was not a follower of, of, of uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. She was a follower, most likely, of the Astra, Astora or, ba, or Baal. And she's going to be leading the people the wrong direction for six years. And this is kind of an interesting thing. God's plan is always in the longer term than what we would plan on. You know, our plan would be, let's get Joash in there right away and we'll put somebody else, you know, we'll let somebody else govern the government for him. But he is not in a position, he's not old enough, even at six years old, he's not going to be old enough to truly reign. But at least at six years old, 
he can be trained to do, you know, make some decisions and be watched. Uh-huh. But he's going to be king. <laughs> Technically, the, the, the priest is running the country during that period of time. But he's doing it in Joash's name. So, verse 4. And the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers of the hundreds with the captains and the guard and brought them to him in the house of the Lord and made a covenant with them and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, saying, This is the thing that you shall do. A third part of you will enter in on the Sabbath, shall enter in on the, on the Sabbath, shall be keepers of the watch of the king's house, and a third part shall be at the gate of Sir, and a third part at the gate behind the guard. So shall you keep the watch of the house, that it be not broken down. The two parts of all of you that go forth on the Sabbath, even they shall keep watch of the house of the Lord about the king. And you shall compass the king round about, every man with his weapon in his hand, and he that cometh within the range, ranges, let him be slain, and, and, let, and be you with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. And the captains over the hundreds did according to the things that Jehodiah the priest commanded, and they took every man his men that were coming to the, on the Sabbath with them, that they should go down on the Sabbath and came to Jeho, Jehoiada the priest. And the captains over the hundreds did the priests give King David spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. And the guard stood every man with his weapons in his hand round about the king from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple and along by the altar and the temple. And he brought forth the king's son and put a crown upon his head and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, God save the, queen, the, the king. All right. Six years old and in his seventh year. Uh, so he's six, seven years old. He's in his seventh year, depending on how you count it. One of the problems we have in this, and I don't remember which of the, uh, whether it's the northern or southern kingdom, one of them tells time the way we do is as Greeks you are you aren't your year old until you are a year all right the other kingdom tells it in Asian for purposes that as soon as you're born you're one year old and then as soon as you start your you so you're starting I'm starting my first year I'm starting my second year I'm starting my third year so if you ever deal with somebody from Asia from the Asian nations and they tell you they're 16, we would say that they're 15 because they tell, they tell their birthdays differently. You're one year old the day you're born. You're living in your first year. All right? We in, we in the Greek, European you know, culture, you're, you're zero years old until you've lived, your, lived a year. Uh, so we don't know, I don't know, I don't remember if he is six years old, living in his seventh year, or if he's in his seventh year, it's kind of irrelevant. He's young. <laughs> All right? Um, yeah, he's still, well, he's not quite a baby, but he's still very young. So in the seventh year, Jehoiada, the priest, he, catches, he gets all the leaders of the people and gets them together into the temple. And he tells them about his plan, that they have the king, the legitimate heir to the throne has been in his care for six years. This tells you how fast and readily they're, they're ready to stand with him. Athaliah is not very popular, very obviously. You know, he's able to get all the leaders to 
readily agree to put a young child on the throne as opposed to Athaliah because she's a usurper. She's not even Jewish. All right, so get that in mind. She's not a Jew. She's not one of the people. She's not of the seed of David. And she had the audacity to murder off the sons of David. And now they find out there's a son of David available. And so he says he made a covenant with them, and he made them give an oath. And this is very important, the giving of an oath. Because God says that when you make an oath, you are to keep it. And that's all through the Pentateuch. So he's making them swear, probably by God, that they are going to support the, the true king of Judah. And this is going to be a big deal. And this is something that we in our day have kind of gotten away with, you know, away from the idea that if you say you're going to do something, you know, you're going to do it. And he's making them actually make an, make an oath or a swearing of this. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. In today's world, you have to say, I promise you have to have an iron contract, uh, ironclad contract, and your lawyer better be better than the lawyer that the person hires to, to find the loophole in their contract. You know, and that's sad because we should be able to say, if somebody says they're going to do something, it should be trusted that they're going to do it. And in our day and age, it's not very likely that that's happening anymore. And if you trust somebody, you, you, know, you usually get burned. And that's a sad thing to happen, but it is, these guys are being bound under an oath by, for God that they're going to support this young king. And in process, be able to say that Jehoiada is going to be his, guide, his guiding guardian. And then his plan is kind of interesting. He says, uh, this is the thing you should do. A third part of you shall enter in on the Sabbath to be keepers of the watch of the king's house. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. He's going to bring in three divisions of, of men. The first one are coming, and they're guarding the palace. Now, who's living in the palace is Athaliah. So he's putting a third of the men to guard the palace so that Athaliah cannot come out with her, any bodyguard that she has and try to stop whatever they're going to do. So he's replacing her guards with his guards, basically, to make things interesting for them. Uh, and goes, and a third part of you will go to the gate of Shur. Now, I'm sure every one of you know what the gate of Shur is. It is the, it is the chief gate into the temple. So he's putting a third of the guard on the major gate of the temple. That's inside the temple? Right at the temple entrance. All right. So he's got a third of his whatever army that he's been able to do, they're guarding against the palace, watching the palace. He's got a third of them at the entrance of the temple. And he goes, the, the other part of you will be uh, behind the guard, the guard that keep watch. Now, this one is a little more questionable in all of my research, but we do believe by the next description of how they're lined up that they're actually inside the temple. They're in the court of the Gentiles or the court of the women. They're, they're in that area between the temple and the altars and the main, the main gate. So the temple has a main wall on the outside, has the internal wall where all the sacrifices are made, and, the, and then the temple was beyond that. So... We have 
a division out by the palace. We have a division right at the main gate and we have a division in where the worship is done. So we have his, his men all broken up like that. And so, and it goes in verse seven, and two parts of you will shall go forth on the Sabbath and keep watch over the house of the Lord about the king. So this is why we know that other one is internal. In verse 8, and you shall compass the king round about, every man with his weapons in his hand, and he, shall, he that comes within the ranges, let him be slain, and be you with the king as he goes in, out and comes in. So here we go. They're making the king in the center of this circle. And when it says ranges, it literally means ranks. So if anybody comes within their ranks, they were to kill them. Now this is pretty serious. Why would they come in there? You know, number one, the only people who are going to come into the rank of, to get to the king are probably going to be an enemy in the first place uh, because you do not try to rush a dignitary. Uh, if you've ever, ever watched what goes on, we still do it to this day. The president will have a ring of, ring of uh, secret service around them. If you see a king or a queen moving around, they have their entire uh, secret service or bodyguard around them. It's, it's an automatic thing. And... Those people hate it when, the, when the, the president or a king or even a governor gets out and tries to shake hands with people and interact with the people because that's a very dangerous time for them. And these guys were saying, you're going to make a circle around the king. Nobody is to get, nobody is to get close to him. And because this is a dangerous, especially this first day, it's a dangerous moment. They're going to proclaim that there is a king of David on the seat of the throne again. But who's sitting on the throne for seven years has been Athaliah. And every time they go out there, they're not going to know exactly how the military is going to handle, what the, what the, what the royal guard's going to do, or anything. They just know that all of this stuff is going to happen. So this is a very dangerous moment because they don't know who they can trust, who they don't, can't trust. And they're Basically, even though he is the legitimate king, the way that it's after six years, he is the illegitimate king. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting place. He is the legitimate king because he is the son of David. He's the rightful king. But everything for six years has been with the wrong person ruling. So you don't know what's going to happen when you, when you make this declaration that we're ready to put the right king on the throne. And it's a very, very dangerous moment. So he's saying, don't let anybody near him. Nobody gets anywhere near him. You are to circle him. Nobody gets close to him because we don't trust anybody. If, they're not on our, if we don't know that they're on our side, they don't get near him. And so this is what's going on. And he says, you make sure you keep a circle around him. Wherever he goes, that circle stays with him. So he's put people as his bodyguard. All right, and this is a large group. I mean, they, he's saying you're basically saying you're responsible. <laughs> he cannot die, and this is a serious. You know, we really do have to understand how serious this. He's the last descendant of David at this point in time because Athaliah has killed all the other ones. Huh? That was the, that was my next point. The devil wants him dead. Because if he can kill him, Jesus does not get born. Because David is of the seed of David. So this is a very 
crucial point in all of the universe. Not Well, because when Athaliah's son died, she killed all the royal seed. And Joash was hidden away. He's the last one. So if he could have been killed, Satan would have won. And the, Jesus could not have been born because Jesus, because God would have been proved a liar because the seed of the line of David ended. So this is not just a big deal for Israel at that moment. This is a moment of history for the entire world without being known because this is the one chance that Satan would have had to destroy the line of David. And so there, this was a big deal. This is God protecting him. This isn't even... Jeho Jehoiada is not the one protecting him. The, the guard around him is not protecting him. God is protecting him because he could not let Joash die because of the importance in this. Now, nobody in this time knows this. I mean, they know that David is supposed to have a seed, on, you know, seed forever. So, I mean, on one side, if they have faith, they know that this has got to happen. But they don't really realize the importance of this moment in history, of all of history. This is a really big deal. And the captains over the hundreds did according to everything in verse 9, that Jehoiada, the, the priest, said, and they took every man his men and were coming on the Sabbath that they should go out on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And in verse 10, and the captains of the, over the hundreds did the priest give King David spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. Now in this case, we don't know exactly where these shields and stuff come from. Uh, we look at this in 2 Samuel 8, 7 or 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians yeah, 1 Chronicles <laughs> Uh, chapter 18, verse 7, it talks about David having taken shields and spears and everything away from uh, Ahadadad, and he dedicated them to the Lord. That's as close to the information that we have of him putting anything into the temple. Second Chronicles. Second uh, Samuel. 8, 7. That's the closest thing we have of David putting any kind of armory in the temple. It is possible that he put an armory in the temple because he put strongholds all over Israel. Uh, but we don't know. And so we don't have a reference to an armory, but they're pulling weapons out of the temple. These guys are going to the temple and being given weapons. Uh, was there a temple guard at that point? We don't know. We do know by Jesus' day that there was an actual temple guard and that there would have been weapons kept in the temple for the guard, but we don't know in this case. Uh, the other one's just that David took and he dedicated the weapon. So we don't, <laughs> we don't know how it is. Maybe Jehoiada, it could very well be that Jehoiada was, was putting weapons away for six years. Uh, so we don't know, but they specifically say they were David's spears and weapons. We do know that uh, Samuel, or Solomon rather, not Samuel, but Solomon had decorative uh, armament made out of gold, but we don't think that that was stored in the temple. 
So again, every place I looked at, I was trying to find some reference to this David's armory <laughs> being in the temple, and everybody goes, we don't know. The closest they, do, they would say is these weapons that David dedicated to the Lord. And that would indicate that maybe they were stored at the temple. Because Goliath's sword was put into the temple, if you remember, the, the tabernacle at that day. Uh, so it was dedicated to God and was put into the tabernacle. So it is quite possible that these weapons are the ones they're talking about. Uh, we, there's just no biblical reference to it. In there, and I couldn't find any historical reference to an armory at the temple. But we find that it says these were David's spears and swords that he had put in there. And it's quite possible he said, David might have said, I'm building this thing up. And we're going to make sure that nobody ever conquers it. We're going to put a guard, you know, we're going to put weapons in there. If they go to the, if they get pushed back to the temple, there's going to be a, an armory in the temple. Uh, we don't know. So that's where we're at with that. And then it says in verse 11, and the guard stood every man with his weapon in his hand round about the king from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple. All right, so you've got a, a line of people at the temple lined up. And then the next group of people were lined up in, along by the altar of the temple. So further, closer to the wall, you have another line of people closer to the altar. And then remember, our third group is out by the wall of the temple. So there's three lines of men ready to defend the king. So they're ready for a major assault. You know, three lines deep. So if anybody gets through one, you're going to have to hit the next one. You get through that one, you get, you get hit by the other one. And this is interesting strategy. I mean, how Jehoiada gets to be such a military genius, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe God talked to him, inspired him, we don't know. But he now has three lines at the temple. And his fourth line is at the palace. So that's going to be the easiest one to get past. But the rest of them are going to be much harder because there's only one gate into the temple, one major gate in the temple, and they've probably barred the other ones. It doesn't say so, but I'm sure he barred the other ones so nobody's going to come around from, on the surprise. And we have this this battle plan ready to go. And he says, he, then after everybody's in position, he brings out the king, the king's son, puts, his, puts the crown on his head, anoints him with oil, and everybody says, God save the king. And we're going to find out that Athaliah was real happy about this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sam's giving me a funny look. Okay, verse 13. And when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and the people, she came to the people into the temple of the Lord. And when she looked, and behold, the king stood by the pillar as the manor was, and the princes and the trumpeters by the king. And all the people of the land rejoiced and blew their trumpets, that Athaliah rent her clothes and cried, Treason, treason. But Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the host, and said to them, Have her forth without the ranges, and him that followeth, followeth her killed with the sword. For the priest said, Let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. And they laid their hands on her, and she went by the way by the which the horses came into the king's house, and there she was slain. 
And I don't really understand why Athaliah went to the temple in the first place without, without much of a bodyguard by the sounds of it. Um, but she seems to have all the arrogance of Jezebel. Remember when Jezebel went to the window, she dressed up in full royal uh, regalia, put her royal robes on and everything, and then she looked down at Jehu and said, well, what's the problem? What, what's going on? Like, I'm still in charge. I'm not going to be kicked out of my, my palace. She's having that. Her, her daughter is the same, same way. She is so absolutely sure that she has control of it, of it. I mean, this is her grandson that was being raised up. You know, she's, maybe she's hoping that there's going to be some mercy somewhere. I don't know. I don't know what she's thinking. But she reminds me of her mother. The arrogance that I am so great, nobody is going to dare to touch me. I was thinking like she just reminds me of Jezebel, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, she's, well, that's her mother. I mean, Jezebel was her mother. So she is out there, and she just, she heads to the temple. Now, I'm sure she did not head by herself. I mean, there's got to be a bodyguard. Nobody in royal position ever goes anywhere by themselves. Even in today's world, they do not go anywhere completely by themselves. Now, sometimes their, their guard will be, you know, far enough away that you don't know that they're totally guard, you know, surrounded and guarded, but they never go anywhere by themselves. And so I'm sure she did not go there. Uh, she heard the noise of the guard. She heard, and she came to the people into the temple. And when she looked, the king stood by the pillar as the manner was, and the, of the, and the princes and the trumpeters of the king, and all the people of the land rejoiced. So he was in, being stood up where the king would stand in the temple when he was there. And so her eyes immediately went to there, and there is a young boy. <laughs> she thought she's killed all of the descendants. She sees a young boy with a crown and the royal robes and recognizes everybody saying that he's king. Now, her first thought would be, like, who is this usurper over there? And that's probably her first thought. She, she thinks she's killed all of the descendants. So her first thought's going to be, who is this that they've put in, put in this place? And when she sees this, and she sees the people rejoicing, she tears her clothes, which is that idea of repentance and sheer terror or, or mourning. And it's kind of interesting. She yells out, treason, treason. The traitor yells out, treason. <laughs> uh, uh, which is not a surprise in many things, because... If you really look at what goes on in people's lives, is the very people whose sin is going on usually accuse others of exactly what they're doing. And it's an amazing thing. Liars believe that all people lie and will call people liars very quickly. Thieves believe everybody steals. She is believing that they're putting somebody up in her place that is not legitimate. Because she's not legitimate, and she knows she's not legitimate. So her first ac accusation is, this is treason. Yeah, they're coming against me. They, I'm the queen. I've been the queen for six years. How can, they, how can this be going on? So the traitor calls out treason. And Jehoiada commands the captains of the hundreds to take her away, 
get her outside of the ranks. Now, she may have come with the guard that was put at the palace. She may not have recognized the fact that the guard that she came with was not her guard. That was his whole purpose. He put his guard at, at the palace. So she may have come with an entire group of people thinking that she was in, invincible. She's got her guard to protect her, uh, which would also go to show her arrogance that she doesn't even recognize that the leaders are not hers. She's thinking all about herself. And unfortunately, that's why a lot of people, when they get this arrogant, they never think about anybody else. They never recognize anybody else. And there have been certain presidents over the years, even in America, that they go, they have been so dismissive of their, of their guards and their servants. You know, they're, they're, they feel like they're so much above them that they don't recognize who they are. And various ones over the years have done that. And... It's not good for you to do that, you're, especially your guard. Yeah. You, know, you better recognize your guard and know who your guard is <laughs> so that when they're replaced, you know that you don't have the right people. And so they immediately arrest her, and they start taking her away. And, and Jehoiada says, if anybody supports her, kill that person as well. So this is a, again, this is a moment of huge tension. Is anybody going to stand up for Athaliah anywhere in this whole group? And at this point, you don't just have his three groups of, of armed people. You have all the other people who are immediately gathered to the commotion. Because even in our day, what happens as soon as there's something that's happening, people do not run away from commotion they run to it. There may be gunshots, and people tend to run to the gunshots. i got to go find out who's being shot. You know, and then they start running away when the guns start getting pointed their way. But, you know, but this is what's happening. This, God saved the king, and all of a sudden, people are, you know, the noise is being, the trumpets are going. we got to go find out what's going on. And this is a moment, again, where it's a tense moment. They're going to arrest the, the, the queen Illegitimate as she is, she's been ruling for six years, so there's a moment of whose side are people going to be on? Are somebody going to come up and try to help her? And he says, if anybody tries to help her, kill them. And they drag her out, and it says they take her by, out by the way that the horses come into the king's house, and there she was slain. So now Athaliah is dead. The, the usurping queen is now dead. Yeah, she's call, call, calling treason. And from her perspective, it is treason. She thought she'd killed all, the, all the, the seed of David, and she doesn't realize that the person they're putting on is the true king because she thinks she's killed them all. So as far as she's concerned, it is real treason. They don't, she has no idea who they're putting, putting in there, and she's never going to find out, apparently. This happens very quickly. She shows up, they kill her. <laughs> Anybody who guard, who's coming to help her is killed. Verse 17. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people between the king also and the people. And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal and broke it down. His altars and his images broke they into pieces thoroughly. 
and slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars and the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And he took the rulers over hundreds and the captains and the guard and all the people of the land. And they brought down the king from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate of the guard to the king's house. And he sat on the throne of the kings and all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet. And they slew Athaliah with the sword beside the king's house. Seven years old was Joash when he began to reign. <laughs> all right. Jehoiada makes a covenant. He's a priest. Remember, he's the priest. So he's going, he is the spiritual advisor to Joash. He's been raising him for, for the seven years, or six years, seven years. So, and he has been teaching him. And he makes a covenant between the, the Lord, the king, and the people that they should be the Lord's people. All right? That's number one. You are going to be followers of God. Now, up to this point, we're going to find out Baal was being worshipped. And that makes sense because Athaliah would have been Jezebel and Ahab's daughter, so she would have brought in false worship. So the temple probably has not been in good shape for the last six years of this, of this time because the wrong person has been leading the people and has not been pushing for worship of God. Not wasn't obviously wasn't totally wiped out, but but it was not being the point. And then she goes, and then he goes, and between the king and the people. So not only are you going to worship God, but he goes, we're going to put a covenant between you and the king. Honor the king. And this is a very important step that he's making. He's saying, you all first follow God. And he's put it in the right order. Our life should always be first and foremost to follow God and seek after him in all, in all aspects. Then he brings it between the people and the king or the government and says, I also want you to be obedient to the king. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing, you know, to, to make a covenant with a seven-year-old <laughs> to be the ruler. And again, we know that even in today's world, if somebody that young is made king, they have a governor over them that is basically running the country. And we're going to find out later on that Jehoiada is the one that's going to run the country in Joash's name until Joash becomes old enough to run it on his own. And we're going to find out that as long as Jehoiada lives, Joash is a great king. And he listens to basically dad. Je Jehoiada has been raising him and he listens to him and he follows what he says and he does what he says. And, jo and Joash is going to do many things even on his own when he first starts. He's going to end up making some mistakes, but he starts out as a very good, righteous king and follows his first years of training really well. Jehoiada raises him up really well in following God. He, he puts the people on the right path to, to seek after God and puts the king on the path to seek after God. So he puts this in the right order. Follow God, follow, follow, the, follow the government. And that's the same thing for us in, in our days. In America, we've had no real problems being able to follow the government and God at the same time. But... We're starting to see changes in our country and in our, in our world that it may come to a place where to follow God means that we're not following the government anymore. 
And we have to make some decisions when, as in the near future, probably. Are we going to, our first and foremost is to God. But also recognize, just as we've said before, when the disciples disobeyed the government to obey God, they did not tell the government, well, you can't punish us, we're obeying God. They took the punishment from the government because they were still sub submitted to the government, even though they couldn't obey the government and everything the government said. So there will come a time that if we have to make a decision to obey God rather than man, we can't then go to the government and say, well, you can't punish me, I'm obeying God. You know, the disciples took the punishment, and what was their attitude all over and over again? Thank God I was found worthy to suffer. And that was their attitude. They weren't trying to yell to them, you can't punish us, we were obeying God, but they go, thank God I was worthy to suffer. And we need to prepare our hearts for that kind of problems. I don't know if we're going to get that bad in our lifetime, but I'm looking around and seeing some very strange things happening in our, in our, in our government, in our, in our country, that could really affect us as Christians. And we need to be ready to say, I'm going to follow God. And if that means I get sent to jail or I get fined or whatever it is that I have to do, then, then I'm still going to obey God. And that's going to be some hard decisions. And not every decision is one that, that we have to say we've got to disobey. But there are certain things that may end up becoming very interesting. You know, we have this whole transgender movement and homosexuality movement and fluid, fluidity gender where you're either or, depending on what day of the week it is. Uh, you know, uh, we've got all kinds of crazy things going on. And God calls those things sin, and we have to be ready to call those things sin, and that can cause us problems in the church, depending on how they write the laws. There's always been religious uh, exceptions for these in the past. But you listen to these guys, they don't want the religious exemptions anymore. They do not like the Christians being troublemakers for them. Because we have said, no, we've got to obey God. They don't like that. And they're starting to talk about not putting those exceptions in. Now, that would go to court and all that stuff, but eventually we can't count on the court to protect us the way things are going. The Constitution is not standing up very well anymore. They're shredding the Constitution every time they turn around, so we need to be careful. We need to be obedient to God and be ready to suffer for God uh, when, when we obey, obey Him. And we just need to be, make sure that our order is right. God first, country second. And very important that we keep that in order. Verse 18, And all the people of the land went into the house of all and broke it down. His altars and his images broke they into pieces thoroughly and slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. All right. Now, it says all the people. I'm thinking it means all the people that were there that day. Uh, unless it was all throughout the land, but they went to the major, major temple for Baal, which was probably on the high, the high places. The high places were right in Jerusalem. It was a tall mountain right, right there by the, by the temple. And so there was probably a temple of Baal right there. And they went in and they destroyed that temple and took their, high, that, their, their main priest and killed him on the altar of Baal and cleaned up that 
and the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. So he put new officers over, over the temple to be able to be trusted. And this is something that was a very important thing. He would have taken all the main officers in the army and put his people in their places because he didn't want anybody to be able to rise up against King Joash. And if you're going to trust the king to the, government, to, the, to the military to be protected, you want to make sure your people are the ones that are in key places. And he would have replaced the bodyguard and everything to make sure he knows who is protecting Joash at all times. And he's going to put his officers in place. He's going to put his officers over the temple uh, to make sure that nobody rises up. Because remember, he has killed Athaliah. She is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, we don't have anybody left in that family either because remember, Jehu has killed all of Ahab's family. <laughs> he was told by God to kill, their, kill them all, though. So he legitimately kills, kills them. So we don't have a huge amount. But Jezebel is the daughter of the king of, of Syria. So now Jehu has killed the king of Assyria's daughter, and Joash, or Jehoiada, has killed the king of Syria's granddaughter. There is a potential for problems here. If, if this king decides that uh, he wants to go to war, he could be the next big target to try to, to make uh, problems with them because his daughter and his granddaughter have been killed. Now, both of them thought that they were something great, but they were both princesses, and they, thought, and they had every bad attribute of princesses that are attributed to princesses. Not that every princess is bad, but they, you know, when, when we think of the bad side of being a princess, these were those princesses. All right? uh, they weren't caring about their people. They weren't trying to do good things. They were me-first individuals. So there is this potential. We've got to remember their father is a king of another country. This could be a very bad situation for both Israel and Syria. And we left off in chapter 10 that because of the disobedience of Jehu toward God, that that king is starting to take parts of the southern kingdom away, uh, of the northern kingdom, the northern part of the kingdom away. He was conquering and taking it away. But God was making him have enemies on all sides, so his, his kingdom was getting smaller and smaller because of his disobedience. But again, the king is defending. His daughter has just been murdered by this man. So he is moving in and probably harassing him for that, even though it's not said in scripture, he's harassing him because his daughter's been murdered. And so he's going to be in there. And then in verse 19, it says, And he took the rulers over hundreds and the captains of the guard. And he took the rulers of the hundreds and captains of the guard and all the people of the land. And they brought down the king from the house of the Lord. And they came to the way of the guard, gate of the guard of the king's house. And he sat him on the throne of the king. So he took him into the temple and put him, or no, excuse me, into the palace and put him on the throne. So they moved him from the temple's pillar where the king stands to worship, and they basically paraded him to the palace and sat him on the throne. Huge, huge you know, picture here. They've had a celebration now. 
And at this point, the people are probably celebrating and in rejoicing because the next verse says, verse 20, and all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet and they slew Athaliah with the sword at the king's house. The people rejoiced, which tells us there was some tension when Athaliah was, was ruling because they knew that she wasn't the ruler. They knew that a, king, a, a son of David needed to be on the throne and she's not of David's line at all. They, there's this whole thing of what are we going to do? Because everybody understood the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. This was a big issue with them. Can you imagine the problems they're having with the word of God at this point, if they were even thinking about it? The Messiah has to come from the line of David. The entire line of David's been wiped out as far as they understand. What would that do to your faith? Everything you know about the Bible, the, all the Bible prophecies are all not able to come true. Would you have held on for six years with your faith? Unfortunately, many times people have not held on to the word of God when everything looked bad. For many, many millennia, people looked at David as a mythological character because he was only mentioned in the Bible could find no history of him anywhere out there for a long time. Then in the 50s, they finally found proof that David had lived. And they go, oh, the Bible was right. But you know how many people had their faith shaken for a long time because they could not find any historical proof of one of the greatest kings of Israel ever lived? 1850, one big event happened in 1850, Darwin wrote a book, and evolution started being popularized. What did the church do? Oh man, the, the church tried to run somersaults in trying to figure out how evolution could be true and that the Bible could be true. Even though they were diametrically opposed and could both could not be true, they worked real hard at trying to figure out how both could be true, instead of accepting the Bible as true. We need to be very careful all the time. When we look at the Bible and we know that something is taught in the Bible clearly, we must believe the Bible in spite of any evidence that people are trying to throw at us. One of the other contradictions, and we'll bring it up because I haven't really hit this on this, through Kings and, and Chronicles, people have added up the dates and the times of each of these kings, and they're going, they don't add up. There, there's too much overlap. And, and it's not a hard one to explain, and I've explained half of it earlier. Part of it is that we tell that the, the two nations told time differently. Uh, and that's as much as a year, that's as much as a year to two years off, depending on. Where, where they are in their first year or second year. Okay, so that's a year or two. But the other part of it is there were co-regencies. And whenever a king went to battle, they would pick their son that, was going to, that they wanted to be king and make them king. So that they were fully king, but they were number two king. All right? Uh, I, I'm number one king, son. If I die, you are king. And it prevented the bloodshed. All right? If the king had actually picked which son, it prevented the bloodshed of the sons fighting to see who was going to be king when the father died. The oldest would claim it, 
but it wasn't always the way it is because like Solomon was not even close to the oldest son. And we remember when we talked about Solomon becoming king, he had a brother trying to declare himself king before David was dead. And David said, no, Solomon is king. And Nathan and them had the ceremony and made him king. So he had a co-regency with David. And so we have to go, are we talking about a co-regency? Are we talking about when they became officially the only king? We have another great example of this, of this uh, co-regency thing. When the handwriting on the wall, when uh, Daniel wrote, read it, he was told, I will make you third ruler of the kingdom. Why did he not say second ruler? Because he was the second ruler. He, couldn't, he, couldn't give, he wasn't going to give him his position. He says, I'll make you third ruler. Dad is at war. He, I'm, he's not even in the, in, the, in, the, in the area anymore. I'm running the city. I am the next in line, but you now will be, you will be the third ruler. So now you've got three kings lined up <laughs> uh, on that particular thing. Uh, so this is what happens. It happened a lot back in then. And we hear it, you know, even in our days, you're listening, if you pay any attention to the royal family in England, you've got Queen Elizabeth getting much older in age, and there's some jockeying for position. There's the one who's supposed to be next ruler, and then there's jockeying for position on who is going to be the next ruler of, of the monarchy. And it's kind of funny listening to it. And they want it to be the younger generation so that there will be somebody. We got this positioning, and I, and I think they'll probably, to solve this problem, there will probably be a royal degree from her before she passes away saying, he's king. Even though she will still be ruler, he will be elevated to king so that she picks. But this is what happens in, in all of this. I mean, so this is why... People try to tie these up and you go, well, no, they became king under this person, but they didn't become fully king until their father died in this battle. Uh, so it's pretty easy to explain away these, these ways. I'm not going to say easy because you'd have to read lots of books to be able to figure out how, how they all matched up. And then you'd have to look at history on, all the, on the dual, dual. But there is an answer. This is the problem that we have out there is the world has an agenda. And it is an agenda to destroy God. And I'm not saying the individuals themselves are that way. They're being, they're being pushed by a power that they don't understand. All right? Most of what goes on in our world is people doing what they think is best, but they're going from their own understanding, which is from hum humanity, fallen humanity, which is then backed by Satan. Satan is the master chess player moving the pieces around, and they don't even know that they're being used by Satan to bring about what he wants to have occurring. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to follow you and all to set you up and to be number one, to trust you no matter what. Help us to be able to see your worth and your honor and to follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. 
However, Romans 5, 8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.